the absolute worst day in my personal opinion, but we'll see if the rip drops on my due date. What can you do? This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by an expectant mother, community organizer, climate activist, and Canadian politician. She worked at Victoria Women in Need, running programs for women who have experienced abuse. She co-founded Divest Victoria, a nonprofit organization that advocates for cities to take their money out of fossil fuels and put them into environmentally responsible investments, while also fighting along the Shawnigan Lake community to protect their watershed. She also worked for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Northern Uganda to help folks displaced by civil war rebuild their lives. She taught a number of sociology courses at the University of Victoria, a former Victoria City Councilor. Currently, she's the federal NDP critic for the environment and climate change and the NDP Deputy Caucus Chair. She's the Member of Parliament for the riding of Victoria, BC, as elected in 2019. And she is here via the magic of Zoom. She is Laurel Collins. Laurel, how are you? I'm doing well this morning. It's really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. My pleasure. I appreciate your time. And you know, I'm going through your impressive resume and I'm like, oh, wow, we're not really going to talk about any of this stuff, Uh, particularly (laughs) the environment and climate change, which seems to have been your focus. And there's a reason for this, of course. We've been following each other on Twitter for a little while now, and you caught my attention recently because you are expecting your first child. So congratulations to you and your partner, James, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) And so you are planning to work, vote in the House of Commons, debate bills, and perhaps even hit the campaign trail if an early election is called while pregnant, but then also as a new mom. And very serendipitously, a theme has emerged on this podcast about the burden and cultural challenges facing working moms with a big discussion around universal childcare. And I thought, wow, you know what, Laurel, you could be such a great addition to the episodes that I did with Dr. Amanda Watson and BC Minister of State for Childcare, Katrina Chen, episodes 109 and 110. And we'll get to some of that dialogue, but first I have to ask, I know this is your first child, but what is the pregnancy experience like during COVID and how is it different as far as you can tell? Yeah, you know, I think there are definite pros and cons. Um, there's some silver linings, which, you know, one of the biggest ones for me, I am normally flying back and forth to Ottawa um, almost every week. So two out of my seven days of the week when the house is sitting, mm-hmm. I'll be on a plane. Um, and it's a, you know, 10 hour journey from door to door uh, here in Victoria to to my place in Ottawa. And, uh, you know, doing that while pregnant would be, <laughs> be a huge challenge I did I was um back and forth a little bit in in the fall while I was in my first trimester and Mm -hmm. still hadn't told anyone I was pregnant (laughs) Um, so that was a fun adventure but I'm really grateful right now to be able to use some of these virtual tools so that I can participate in committee I can be up in uh debates in the house of commons on bills Mm -hmm. and in question period holding the government to account 
while also not having to jump on a, a long flight uh, in my third trimester. Sure. Yeah. And just, I guess, on a personal level as well, like I'm, I'm curious about the pregnancy and the planning because I imagine there might be some barriers or challenges around seeing family in the hospital next month when you're due. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I'm very lucky that I, my mom actually moved into our fourplex building. She lives right next door to us. She's our neighbor. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so I've got some family built into our kind of household. Um, but it's definitely one of the things I'm, I'm worried the most about is just depending on how quickly we can emerge from this pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, how much is my baby going to get to know uh, my friends and family in the first kind of critical months of their life, the first critical year. And I think a lot of people who uh, have been pregnant throughout this uh, have had newborns, you know, the conversation around, you know, it takes a village mm-hmm. um, and it really does take a lot of support for folks. Uh, it's, it's a hard one when there are these uh, restrictions and public health recommendations that we need to be following for mm-hmm. safety. Um and I, yeah, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the situation that I'm in with a, a supportive partner who's going to take paternity leave and, um, you know, a grandmother who's, who's right here and, and willing to be there and provide child care and help out. Uh, so many people are not in that situation. So many people right now are going through COVID, uh, experiencing the, the impacts of isolation and the um, fear around health and well-being while not having the support networks or having their support networks um, be miles and miles away or a flight away and and can't come and and help out and support them. So I think it's been a really challenging time for a lot of people. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think from the outside, when people think about expecting, especially a first child, it's very exciting and it's a blessing. But I've had some friends that went through their pregnancy and having a child last year through the pandemic And they've actually expressed a fair amount of grief about not being able to see the grandparents or introducing their newborns to friends and, and, you know, now approaching things like first birthdays where you kind of miss the communal experience. And, you know, it must be weird because on one hand, it's exciting, but on the other hand, your expectations and, and people who are pregnant and are having children, their expectations are a lot different than what we're used to, right? Yeah, and you know, I'm hoping that <laughs> soon with the vaccine rollout uh, that we'll be moving out of that phase. But I think it's taken a real toll on people, uh, and you know, it's just one of the many, many impacts, complex impacts of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's the combination of losing some of those support systems and losing some of the those social networks. Um, hopefully temporarily, (laughs) Uh, but then also knowing that our public social safety nets are not always adequate to catch people when they don't have those. And what it's highlighting is that there were already people without those uh, social and familial uh, safety nets and, and support systems. Those people were struggling before the pandemic, they continue to struggle now and that we should actually have public policy and uh, you know, national, provincial, municipal policies that are taking care of people who might not have those those same support systems. Absolutely. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Talking about you specifically, you know, given your role in public office, were there any anxieties or considerations around the timing of your pregnancy 
either as a working mom in general or as a sitting MP in a minority government. And I'm asking this out of ignorance because, you know, I think that despite COVID, despite you being a publicly elected official, you're going through something that probably a lot of working moms-to-be have to confront during their pregnancy. So I'm curious how you have felt personally and what's been going on in your mind in this intersection between motherhood and career. Yeah, no, I definitely had a lot of concerns. Uh, I would say, you know, before deciding to <laughs> um, try, and I, um, I think that there's kind of two sides to it. One uh, is the side around um, what impact will this have on my career? Will I be able to do uh, all of the, <laughs> the things I want to do? I, I care deeply about the work, uh, you know, being the critic for the environment and climate change, uh, being the member of parliament for Victoria. These are some of the biggest honors and biggest joys uh, in my career. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to lose out on any of that. I didn't want to slow down or um, be taken away from the work that, you know, really contributes to my life, but also gives me the sense of purpose and, and meaning. Um, and on the other hand, <laughs> I think there is a fear around, uh, you know, choosing to continue as a, you know, full-time working person and, and be a mother. Um, will I be judged for not taking enough time off? Will I be judged um, for my partner being the one who is doing uh, the primary caregiving role, um, especially as a politician? I think there's this kind of critical gaze <laughs> that happens. And, you know, I think, but I think women across the board experience this, this kind of double-edged sword are you a good enough mother? Are you a good enough woman? <laughs> and are you a good enough career person? Are you uh, truly dedicated and committed to the job that you're doing? Um, and I really want a world where, <laughs> where women are uh, not held to a different standard, where the questions that we ask women when they decide uh, to have a child or uh, continue a career while having a child or decide to take time off, all of these things are the same questions that we ask men. And right now that's just not the case. Right. So I'm just curious in this culture of like telling women to lean in and in this culture of talking about work-life balance, what are the real conversations that we should be having in the dialogue in the cultural dialogue around parenthood and career? Mm, yeah. Great question. I mean, I think ultimately I want a world where women have the choice uh, to, to do uh, what they want and to continue their career, to put their career on pause, to focus on being a mother, whatever, whatever it is that uh, a woman wants to do in the, in this scenario, have children or not have children. Um, you know, we need to change a lot of the societal, societal norms and judgments um, out there. Um, but I also think that there's just this really important, um, you know, conversation around men's role in uh, mm. child rearing. And, um, you know, I, again, I'm just in this very, I would say, lucky and unique situation where my partner has um, the opportunity to take extended parental leave and wants to do that, is excited to do that. Um, and that for me opens up uh, the ability to continue to work and really feel secure in that my child is being taken care of uh, by their other parent. Um, but that's not the case for everyone. And, you know, 
I know we're going to get kind of deeper into childcare, but I think this is one of the big pieces where policy uh, and government investments can actually do the initial legwork for changing our societal ways of thinking and Mm -hmm. (laughs) opening up opportunities for so many people who don't currently have it. You know, I, like I, I think there are, I'm, I'm lucky to be in a position where I'm not facing a lot of those barriers, but I would say the vast majority of women face extreme barriers when, uh, you know, being a young mom and trying to uh, make ends meet or continue a career. Uh, it is, I think it's an uphill battle for a lot of people. For sure. Yeah. And just to keep the focus on you for, for a little bit longer, I'm just curious, what is your plan for pregnancy and new motherhood? Are you going to take time off? Walk me through what this looks like for you and what your plan is. Yeah. And honestly, it's going to depend on uh, how the birth goes. You never know uh, what's going to happen. And I've, I have an incredible team of midwives. I'm part of, um, have a the midwives collective here in Victoria who have just been such a huge support. But the thing that they constantly remind me uh, is that, uh, you know, you can make a plan, but that plan may not actually happen. So uh, depending on how long it takes to recovery from, you know, if it's, um, I'm hoping to have, uh, you know, natural birth, um, but Potentially, if there are health complications, it may be a C-section, there may be surgery involved. So there may be a few weeks after where I'm recovering. I would love to be able to have, you know, six to eight weeks um, where I'm, for the most part, not doing my full (laughs) MP duties. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also, you know, I even as I'm talking about this, I can feel myself feeling torn because there's this other part of me that knows that some of the legislation that I've been working on, and especially uh, Bill C-12, which is the Climate Accountability Act uh, that's coming forward, that this, there's a huge possibility that's going to be in committee uh, in those six to eight weeks. And this is something that I've been you know, pouring my time and energy trying to strengthen this bill. It feels very important to the future of how Canada does when it comes to climate action and uh, meeting our international climate targets. And so letting that go is, <laughs> I can just, I am experiencing the tour in this even as I'm talking about it. Uh, and, you know, there also may be an election. And if there's an election, <laughs> I will likely be out on the campaign tra- trail as, as quickly as possible. And then hopefully take uh, a few weeks after that um, to just be with the, the newborn. Mm-hmm. So we've seen internationally New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. And here in Canada, Liberal MP Karina Gold as leaders, public office holders who have given birth in office, which should be a normalized choice. But of course, it just doesn't happen that often. Are there any lessons that you're gleaning from their experiences, either firsthand from Gould or former BCMLA Michelle Mungal, or what you've read or heard or seen about uh, the Prime Minister in New Zealand? Yeah, and you know, I was... Um just really grateful that I had a number of uh, women elected officials who reached out to me when I made my announcement that I was pregnant and Katrina Gold was one of them. Cool. Um, and just really wonderful to have solidarity across party lines. You know, I had a whole number of uh, new Democrat women reach out from across Canada. Um, one in particular, Alina Young, who is in Saskatchewan. She was actually 
on the campaign trail, nine months pregnant, um, wow. one for riding, just really inspiring. Uh, and uh, then, yeah, seeing examples like Jacinda Ardern, she uh, has really paved the way. And uh, she was the first prime minister to take you know, six weeks of maternity leave, which had been unheard of before. You know, she brought her newborn uh, to international United Nations <laughs> um, forums. Mm-hmm. It, uh, this kind of thing changes the way people think. It changes how women who are looking at the political landscape, what they see as possible. I know it's changed what I see as possible. Uh, and I want to continue that work of paving that way for future uh, women people of all genders who want to be parents and uh, be elected officials. Now, not every provincial legislature allows children in the chamber. We know that the federal house of commons obviously does. So I actually presume that your baby might be making an appearance, even if virtually, Uh, can we expect a federal mandate for provincial legislatures across this country to to allow for kids in the chamber and, and, and speaking to you specifically, why would that be important? Mm, you know, I think it's incredibly important for, uh, for new parents to bring their babies into parliament. And I, I want to see um, women doing that. I want to see men doing that. I want to see, you know, any elected official who has, um, has a newborn, who has a baby be able to bring their child in uh, because, you know, I, I would like to be breastfeeding. Um, and if I'm uh, in Ottawa and uh, having to sit in Parliament and vote for sometimes six hours straight, <laughs> depending on how many <laughs> votes there are, uh, you know, we need the option of having uh, our our newborn close at hand to be mm-hmm. able to do both of these things together. The fact that there would be a rule against that, it is it's so antiquated, it's so wild that this still exists and it you know it was only a few 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 years ago in the house of commons that things changed um and rules have changed and you know change tables were were put into women's bathrooms but Mm. there's still not in uh, a lot of men's bathrooms which you know speaks to how we think who we think is doing primary caregiving um and you know i just imagine in say september or october hopefully when we're we're out of the the worst part of the pandemic. We're getting back to some semblance of normal. I'm flying to Ottawa. My partner's coming with me. He's probably in the House of Commons, uh, you know, caring for our child, has to go to the washroom to change uh, the baby's diaper, mm-hmm. and there's no infrastructure set up. Like, all of these pieces uh, need to change. And I, I'm guessing there probably isn't a um, federal mandate coming there just to your specific question for provincial legislators, but I sure hope those provincial legislators legislatures are thinking about changing on their own because a number of them already have. Uh, and uh, you know, it, this is, it, it's in some ways a small thing, but it's, it demonstrates it's a little uh, kind of capsule or example of uh, the multitude of barriers that new moms face. And honestly, I don't think it's a small thing. I think when we're talking about these issues, the larger issue here is how do we encourage more involvement from women, from trans non-binary folk into the workplace, into government. And you've obviously garnered some press around your pregnancy. I think you're becoming a role model for many women to 
not have to make the same choices between having a family and having a career, particularly a career in politics. You've been an advocate here as well, just like Dr. Watson and Minister Chen, who I've mentioned. What sorts of things, and, and we'll try to be a little brief with this, but what sorts of things need to be done to encourage more women, including potentially new moms, to enter politics, especially as their voice is so crucial on a variety of issues? Hmm, such a great question. And, you know, I feel like we need a multi-pronged complex <laughs> approaches. So that's, you know, including the things that we just talked about in terms of changing infrastructure and changing uh, institutional policies. Uh, we, uh, yeah, we also need those kind of core uh, social services, the, the, the supports that, that people depend on, you know, uh, when a single mother is trying to go into politics, uh, is childcare available to her? Is she worried about, you know, the months when she's running for elected office, uh, you know, it, that she might lose her benefits or her uh, income and can't provide dental care or the medication that her child needs? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think oftentimes we separate out kind of the tangible, concrete, specific pieces that might, you know, childcare is an obvious one, you know, young moms, uh, young parents uh, need childcare in order to uh, really have the same opportunities across the income spectrum. But we also need to be thinking about income supports and uh, dental care, <laughs> universal pharmacare, um, making sure that there are the large or like kind of broader uh, support systems there so that women don't face economic barriers, which they do because women are across the board paid less, um, you know, labor that is considered feminized, um, that, you know, has predominantly women working in those, those sectors are paid less generally. Um, and also women often are in precarious and, um, employment, part-time employment, which we know in COVID especially has been specifically hard hit. Mm -hmm. uh, cool. And so we need to be addressing those inequities if we actually want to be able to create the conditions for women and people of all genders to uh, step into roles of leadership. And whether that's in politics, but also in business, also in academia, also in any uh, sector, when you look at the people who are at the kind of highest tier of the, the whatever hierarchy you're looking at, uh, the people who are paid the most, the people who are making the top decisions, those people are predominantly men. And that, you know, holds true in almost every sector. And that's, you know, especially true in politics. Uh, and so I think we have a lot of work to do. And so, you know, I've made an embedded assumption that it is crucial for women to be in politics. But there might be some people who are not yet persuaded by a gender equity argument here. So I want to hear it from you. When we talk about making workplaces, institutions more welcoming for women, trans, non-binary folk, why is that gender representation important? Yeah, I mean, there is, uh, I, in my opinion, there's just the, uh, the piece around justice, I think, stands on its own. Equity uh, fairness, justice, having uh, equity and representation, I think is a kind of standalone value that I, but if someone is not on board for that, 
Uh, it's also about the kinds of perspectives that we get in policymaking and people with lived experience, uh, you know, whether that is women, trans folks, uh, non-binary folks, you know, racialized folks, people with disabilities, uh, all of these perspectives have been missing from our policymaking for you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have a lot of ground to make up. We know that our policies are discriminatory. We know that our policies marginalize uh, whole communities, whole groups of people. And the only way that changes is by having people with lived experience in positions, making decisions, bringing that perspective in, because oftentimes people who are not in those groups are blind to it. And that's not to say, you know, every woman is going <laughs> to create policies that uh, are going to advance women's equity. It's not to say um, that if someone's had lived experience that they necessarily will be a champion for those issues because we, we know that's not the case. Mm-hmm. But having greater representation we know brings those perspectives in. And there's a lot of research out there um, for the you know private and business sector, but also for politics, that we actually end up having better policies companies end up making more money when you have a diversity of perspectives, a diversity of views of, you know, uh, a better snapshot of really what our population experiences. Absolutely. And further to what you've been talking about, I want to bring up this one stat that I believe you're familiar with. Last year, 2020, obviously in the midst of the pandemic, between February and October, 20,000 women left the workplace while 68,000 men joined it. And this is according to a Royal Bank of Canada report. From my understanding, women were largely leaving the workforce to take care of children. So what did COVID-19, what did the pandemic teach us about the cultural burden on working moms? And what did COVID teach us about gender inequality in the economy and the workplace? Yeah, uh, you know, I... And the stat that I heard uh, throughout the pandemic is that women's participation in the workforce is at its lowest in 30 years. So that's uh, three decades of progress and work um, through the women's movement, through, uh, you know, having women have more opportunities that we have lost. That, you know, (laughs) it is just wild to think that uh, in this day and age that women still are. are going to be the ones, you know, and it speaks to both our kind of cultural norms around who we expect to do be doing primary caregiving, but also it speaks to those larger, those kind of um, large gaps in our economic system where women are in more precarious work. They are in uh, part-time work. Oftentimes their jobs are paid less. So if there is a kind of um, two parent family that is, um, that is a man and a woman uh, that oftentimes the man is going to be paid more. Um, And so when they're making economic financial decisions about who's going to take time off and take care of the kids, uh, that financial decision oftentimes uh, means that the woman is going to be Mm -hmm. doing that. And so, uh, you know, it brings us again to this, this conversation around why, universal publicly funded childcare is so essential. You know, there's so much research out there about how these programs pay for themselves. They not only create gender, you know, increase gender equity and make a real difference for 
uh, women and women's opportunity in the workforce, but they also bring huge revenue into government. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can see the concrete example of Quebec and the economic spinoffs from that. Uh, Quebec has a, uh, a childcare program and, the research shows that if we were to implement something similar across Canada, it would actually boost government revenues between 18 billion and 30 billion per year. Hmm. Now, the kind of estimated costs of a comprehensive universal child care program across Canada, a national program, is in the around the 11 billion uh, per year cost. So we already know <laughs> that these programs are financially beneficial. We know that they are uh, beneficial in terms of equity. We, you know, it just is, it's nonsensical to me that we haven't moved forward more rapidly on this uh, as a country. Yeah. And I would agree. And you, you actually took the next question right out of my mouth, which was uh, the importance of universal affordable childcare, because both Dr. Amanda Watson and BC minister Katrina Chen framed an argument on this podcast for that very thing, for universal affordable childcare being the single most transformative investment that government can make right now. And so I appreciate your perspective on that. And I'll have to admit, you know, I didn't really think about it that way until Dr. Watson turned me onto this idea that universal childcare is really this huge economic investment, right? It's not it's not even this equity argument or this argument about justice. It's like it's a it's a big economic argument. And I'm now 100% on board and I feel like I'm woke to this idea, quote unquote, but I'm still baffled as to why it's not at the forefront of the provincial and federal conversation when we're talking about economic recovery and how the government can kickstart the economy. Do you find it frustrating that this issue about universal, affordable childcare is not given its due weight in the larger economic conversation? Yeah, no, absolutely frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do think I want to just uh, kind of give out a, sh- a shout out to Katrina Chen. She has been a fierce champion for this. She has kept this, uh, you know, really front and center. And I think the BC government has done, you know, a huge amount of work on this um, and they've really taken on a leadership role in, in demonstrating how important childcare is. And I, you know, I've spoken to people in my riding uh, in my constituency who have seen their childcare costs uh, cut in half or people who have gotten to pilot programs that, you know, have been transformational mm-hmm. uh, for them. And really, <laughs> you know, what we need right now is federal leadership and a federal government who would actually partner with the provinces. And, you know, especially here in BC, where we have a willing partner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we had the kind of federal leadership that we're seeing at the provincial level, we could actually transform childcare for people. It is just the opportunity is right there. Um, and, you know, you talked about the the number of um jobs and women who had lost uh, their jobs, who left the, the labor workforce. Um, you, I think you had calculated, what was it, 20,000 or? Yeah, 20,000 women left the workforce from February yeah. 2020 to October 2020. So uh, the kind of research shows that uh, there's about 360 to 720 women 
who could actually join the labor workforce uh, over a 10-year period if we implemented a national child care program. Uh, and so, you know, this should be <laughs> enough reason to do this. And what we've seen from the federal government, what we've seen from this liberal government is a lot of talk, a lot of um, kind of saying the lines, talking <laughs> about how important child care is, making promises around national child care, but then when it comes to the actual dollar amount that they're willing to invest, it is in no way uh, adequate to the scale of what we need. And, you know, I, we had been calling um, initially for a um, $10 billion investment, you know, in the lead up to this upcoming budget. And given the impact of COVID, given the impact of what, what we're facing and the importance of childcare in our economic recovery, we're, we're calling on the government to, uh, actually invest uh, $20 billion over the next four years hmm. and uh, $2 billion immediately to deal with uh, the current economic crisis, the current impacts of COVID, uh, but really a, a more long-term vision of how we can work with the provinces and territories, Indigenous governments to establish this national affordable uh, childcare system. And, uh, you know, there are, we want to make sure that families have access to childcare. We want to make sure that childcare is affordable. We want to make sure that the people who are working, you know, who are doing early childcare education are paid adequately. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to be thinking about building childcare centers. You know, this is a job creation, both in the sense of, you know, allowing women who want to, to return to the workforce and enter the workforce, but also, um, you know, by creating quality, affordable, publicly funded childcare, mm -hmm. there are opportunities to do infrastructure. And, uh, you know, it, it feels like if we invest what so far the liberals have uh, promised, which is a small fraction of what's needed, we are missing this huge opportunity right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I agree with you. And I know <laughs> it's kind of been the hallmark of, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in particular to talk a very big progressive game and then deliver very little when it comes to the actual details. I, just, <laughs> I guess where I get frustrated, and again, I'm, I'm someone who considers myself, you know, politically in the know, I try to follow current events. Where I get frustrated is you just gave a perfect example of Katrina Chen, who's out there really spreading that word, really making that persuasive argument of why this is important, why this is transformative. And I sort of concede that at some point, senior government leadership from the federal government has to take responsibility and sell this to the Canadian public in terms of, hey, this isn't just a cost savings. This is transformative for for the economy, it's transformative for public health. We should be looking at this the same way that we look at healthcare, the same way that we look at K-12 education in terms of its importance and creating an underpinning of our society. And so it just frustrates me that the conversation is still, when it's even brought up, it's relegated to like, cost savings or an equity argument, which is fine. And, and yeah. it's nothing against those arguments, but it's relegated to that as opposed to as opposed to looking at the bigger picture of economic transformation. And I think that that has shifted, you know, last year was the 50th um, anniversary on the uh, Royal Commission on the status of women. And, you know, 50 years 
ago, uh, last year, uh, that Royal Commission was recommending national childcare. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think really taking a, the approach that you're talking about, which is that this is important for, for women's, uh, you know, for justice and fairness and for equity. Um, you know, we have been fighting <laughs> for those things. Sure, for absolutely. Some, and 50 years of it not happening. And so now we seem to have business on board. We seem to have, you know, economists, um, the research backs us up. And so I think there is this other approach of, okay, you know, if you don't care about (laughs) women's equity, if if you're not going to fight for it because it is the just, the right thing to do, uh, because women are being discriminated against in, uh, in these kind of institutional policies, then at least at least look at this kind of economic lens mm-hmm. and shouldn't that sell you on it, which is a kind of stat- sad state of affairs. But um, I do think there is value in showing that on every level, this policy makes sense. Yeah. And I think it's a sad state of affairs on one hand, but on the other hand, it also is showing that not just in the case of childcare, but for a lot of equity justice issues, they are there for the, or they can focus on the betterment of society as a whole, I should say. Yeah. And, and we kind of silo out, you know, equity and, and social justice issues sometimes without looking at the larger picture of how this actually makes the quality of life better for everyone. Yeah. What is the federal NDP's plan? You mentioned $20 billion of investment over four years. What does that look like? Like would the federal government distribute funds to provinces or does the federal government itself directly subsidize and then create childcare facilities? Yeah. So our plan is around, you know, enshrining the commitment to quality affordable, accessibly, accessible, uh, universal child care into law, set out the principles and conditions, uh, make sure that there are requirements for federal transfer p- payments to the provinces, mm-hmm. just like in the Canada Health Act. This is not, you know, going outside the bounds of our constitution. This is, has uh, lots of precedents. We can actually put strings attached to uh, the federal transfer payments that we give to the provinces. And so uh, then also, you know, acknowledging that Quebec has a childcare program. And so giving them the option to kind of opt out with compensation, um, making sure that we're working with the, the provinces. And if you look at our history of implementing universal healthcare, uh, this was something that happened uh, over a number of years. Some provinces jumped on right away. Uh, it took a few more years for, for a few more provinces <laughs> to get on board. And it could be the same way with universal childcare. Uh, my hope would be that the provinces would jump on this. You know, it would be huge pots of money <laughs> to mm-hmm. provide uh, services to their uh, constituents. But we do know that, you know, we've uh, seen conservative provincial governments sometimes resistant to <laughs> to implementing these programs. But I do think that uh, if the federal government were to step up, we'd have a lot of provinces who would jump on it right away. Mm -hmm. And within a couple of years, we'd have a truly national, truly universal, accessibly accessible, publicly funded childcare program. I think you've already answered this, but what is the status of this plan in, in a minority government? Have you found allies in the liberal government? I mean, the, the difficulty with this liberal government is that what they say 
sounds like allyship. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, They are talking about national childcare. They are talking about uh, doing the things, you know, if they would actually do it, I would, I would be so excited. I would be, um, but you know, their announcements uh, most recently in their uh, fall fiscal update was to create a national child care secretariat. Now, this is something we've been calling for. It's a, it's a good step, um, but it is in no way adequate to, mm. <laughs> to what we're looking for. It's in, you know, I think potentially in the kind of $10 million range. Now, compare that with what we know uh, is required to actually implement national child care. Now, they have talked about a kind of bigger uh, investment in this upcoming federal budget. I don't know what that will be. Um, I am holding out hope, but maybe with a <laughs> with a dose of uh, cynicism, because my guess is that like uh, universal pharmacare, like uh, action on, <laughs> on climate, uh, they talk a really good game, but when it comes to actually doing the thing they're talking about, actually putting the investments into the programs that people so desperately need, we get a small fraction of what is needed. So let me get spicy and let me just ask you this straight up. Is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a phony when it comes to equitable social and equitable economic policy, or is he just shallow from a policy perspective? I love these two options. <laughs> it's a real binary choice, right? <laughs> you know, and I, uh, I can't totally answer that question. I don't. <laughs> You're so nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know inside the heart of the prime minister. I do know uh, what I've seen and what Canadians have seen, and that is a prime minister who talks about climate action and then misses every single climate target that we set, uh, buys a pipeline and, uh, you know, continues to increase subsidies to fossil fuel companies. Uh, I have seen a, a prime minister who, you know, talks about taking care of people during the pandemic, uh, taking care of small businesses, taking care of people who are falling through the cracks, but then it actually took us fighting you know, pushing this government to provide $2,000 a month. You know, they would not have done that if we had not pushed Mm -hmm. them to do it tooth and nail. Uh, They had to be pushed into doing the right thing for Canadians during a global health pandemic. And then they gave away billions of dollars to huge corporations through the wage subsidy program, through other programs, who then those companies turned around and gave out billions of dollars to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And the government still refuses to do anything about that. They refuse to hold these big corporations accountable. We put forward a really sensible uh, proposition around a wealth tax for uh, people who own over $20 million of wealth, along with a a pandemic profiteering tax for corporations who have been uh, making huge profits during the pandemic, Uh, you know, also closing tax loopholes. These are things that are just sensible, fair taxation for people at the very, 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 very top. The liberals voted against that. Mm -hmm. And so as much as they talk about these uh, social programs that they want to implement and then say, oh, we don't have enough money, there are real solutions on how we could generate uh, revenue for the government. And that means, you know, taxing people who own over $20 million of wealth. That means uh, holding corporations accountable, not giving them huge 
handouts and government subsidies during the pandemic and allowing them to continue to lay off workers and uh, hand that money to their CEOs and shareholders. Uh, you know, I am sure you can hear my frustration, but it is, it's almost more, I mean, oh gosh, I would hate to return to the Harper era, <laughs> um, just a scary time, but it is so frustrating to see uh, this government, this prime minister say all the right things and then turn around and do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Just as we sort of wrap up the conversation on childcare specifically, and we touched on this earlier in terms of the cultural dialogue around universal affordable childcare, even when we think pre-COVID, do you feel like the conversation federally around universal affordable childcare was a top, let's say, five issue? Because I feel like it, it should be a top five issue, and it's not. Where where do you sort of see it being in, t in terms of the, the, the dialogue of, of what's important to Canadians right now? Yeah, I mean, I think at different points during the pandemic, it's kind of emerged as one of the um, larger issues. Uh, I think uh, Canadians really care about this. They understand, I think, uh, the importance of it. I, it's hard during, especially during the pandemic, uh, to break through on anything that isn't COVID related. And so I think there's a like, there's an opportunity here to kind of tie this to our economic recovery, tie mm -hmm. this to the COVID impacts. Um, but I would say, yeah, I, I think it, it will take kind of political parties across the political spectrum, uh, raising this issue up. And it's something, you know, that is, uh, among our top issues as New Democrats, it, mm. when Jugmeet was here in Victoria, we did a press conference um, and fully focused on the the need for national universal childcare. Uh, and it's something that we're going to be really fighting for. I honestly, I'm I don't totally know how to, how to answer the question because I know uh, in previous elections the NDP has put this as one of their kind of key. Uh, platform pieces, especially in the 2015 election, this was uh, kind of front and center, um, you know, similar commitments, but just like really highlighted in all of the, the campaign material and all of the things that the NDP was doing. It didn't seem to make an electoral difference. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's a, it's this, it's this thing that I, I hope that we can do regardless of, <laughs> of what the kind of election narrative is. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that when it comes to policies that make economic sense, that make sense in terms of equity and justice, when it makes sense on all of these different levels, uh, it really is something we should be implementing regardless. Let's talk about election campaigns. Before we started recording, we were talking about your due date and you told me April 26th. And I was like, oh, that's really funny because I'm hearing rumors that that's when the federal election will be called. Uh, so it, it wouldn't happen on April 26th, but it would be called around that time. Are you fully expecting an election to be called this spring, this year? Where's your head at with that? Well, if you had asked me, um, you know, early in January, uh, I would have said we would be in a probably be in an election uh, 
sometime in March, April. Mm. Uh, and so I was uh, kind of expecting an earlier election, I think because of the bumpy vaccine rollout, because of the missteps of, by the federal government when it came to uh, creating the capacity to create va vaccines and um, the delays in getting vaccines to Canada, I think the Liberals have made a strategic decision not to go to an election. Uh, and I think they'll be watching their poll numbers. They're going to be watching how this vaccine rollout, rollout goes. And if they think they can get a majority government, they will go for a majority government, whether that's, you know, dropping the writ, you know, starting the election on my due date <laughs> or <laughs> a little later. Um, you know, I think that if they see the opportunity, they'll probably take it. We've been really uh, trying to get a commitment from them not to go to an election while people are still waiting for vaccines, while, while people are still uh, scared about the the pandemic and, um, you know, where we have some pretty big barriers to having a, a national federal election. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we saw what happened in Newfoundland and the delays and uh, the impacts on election if the variants spread and uh, make this a lot more challenging. Mm -hmm. I think that the Liberals will also be, you know, if the polls don't um, give them a bump and if they don't think they can get a majority, I think they'll probably wait until uh, the fall. My hope is that we can get through this pandemic before we enter into a election. You know, that's <laughs> partially personal. I, I would like to uh, not sure. be in an election while I have a newborn. Um, but also just, I think a lot of Canadians right now are, are really focused on keeping themselves, their families, their community safe. They're focused on uh, the financial impacts, uh, whether that's, you know, losing their jobs or, um, you know, trying to hold on to their small business you know, these are the things that people are worried about right now. And adding an election, I personally don't think is is a, is a great idea. But, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to be ready no matter what. If, if the Liberals go to the Governor General and ask for an election, uh, we'll be out campaigning. If they call an election on your due date, I think you should take that personally. I think you should <laughs> find whatever from your hospital bed. I think you should call out the prime minister and you should take it personally. <laughs> I'll try that out. <laughs> <laughs> now, presuming an election is called this year, if it were to happen, I, I think it will largely be a referendum on how the Trudeau government handled the COVID-19 pandemic at large, and specifically the rollout of the vaccines. In your opinion, has the Trudeau government failed Canadians on vaccines, or is the jury still out? Certainly through January and February, I mean, you, you even made mention to this just now, many commentators felt like the government had absolutely failed. There seems to be a lot more optimism now. Were there strategic misfires? And, and again, it, rolling out a program like this is not easy. It's certainly, you know, new, new territory for a lot of people, but were there sort of unforgivable misfires in delivering vaccine supply to the provinces and to Canadians as a whole? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, we saw Canada falling dangerously behind other countries in our vaccine efforts. And uh, you take the United Kingdom, for example, who were, they were in a very similar situation to Canada at the, you know, 
you know, a year, year ago, mm-hmm. uh, without a lot of uh, capacity to manufacture vaccines, but they actually invested, they, they got the contracts to manufacture vaccines domestically, they made sure that there was uh, de- domestic production capacity. And at that time, we were already seeing uh, the problems in our supply chain when it came to personal protective equipment. So mm-hmm. the PPE, you know, we saw at the outset of the pandemic that we had these issues in supply chains and what happens in a pandemic when you're relying on other countries for these vital pieces. And so at that point, <laughs> uh, the UK made sure that they invested in the capacity to uh, produce vaccines domestically. Canada chose not to. Canada developed a uh, vaccine portfolio searching out from other countries, but didn't actually do that work to make sure that we as a country uh, could have de- domestic manufacturing capacity. Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge error. Uh, it's something, you know, that the NDP last year had been calling on the government to do. It's, you know, part of maybe <laughs> um, more new Democrat ethos to make sure that we have, um, you know, public uh, we've, we've been calling for a public corporation for vaccines uh, and critical drug supplies. And yeah, I think that had a huge impact on our ability to uh, ramp up the rollout of the vaccine. Now, that said, it feels like hopefully we're getting back on track, that vaccines are starting to be delivered. Uh, and I really hope that we can get vaccines out to Canadians as quickly as possible. Uh, I think Canadians were feeling like the federal government wasn't doing everything that they could to get them vaccinated as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hopefully we're getting back on track. Hopefully we can, you know, work together across provincial jurisdiction, like provincial and federal jurisdictions to make sure that this rollout is smooth from this point forward. Uh, but I do think that we need to look forward and think about uh you know, let's make sure that we actually have domestic manufacturing capacity for PPE, for vaccines. Uh, This is something we need for the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should never be in this situation again. We also, you know, one of the pieces that people aren't talking as much about, but that really concerns me is Canada's role on the international uh, world (laughs) level. uh, And how we are increasing or decreasing the global supply of vaccines. (laughs) And Canada was the only G7 country taking vaccines from a program for lower income countries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the same time, Canada was at the WTO uh, blocking efforts uh, that low income countries were making to try and get uh, access to patents to try and get access to vaccines, try and get access to producing vaccines domestically for themselves. And really Canada was standing up for the profits of these big pharmaceutical companies at the expense of lower income countries. And we know this is not a, you know, Canada specific crisis. This is not something that we can just, uh, say, oh, we'll vaccinate Canadians and everything will be okay. We know this is a global, phenomenon, it's uh, going to cross borders if we don't show some leadership and really support lower income countries in ramping up uh, their vaccine rollout and making sure that there is a, you know, ramp up of a global production. We are going to be in this much longer than we we want to be. And well, I think we would be vulnerable to more variants popping up. 
as well. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, and one of my heroes is Stephen Lewis, and he and Jugmeet actually just, I think it was last week, uh, did a press conference together talking about really this need for Canada to show some leadership on the international scale uh, to make sure that we are not blocking lower income countries from getting the vaccines that they need. Mm-hmm. And I just want to clarify one point. You referred to the COVAX program and Canada being the the only G7 country to uh, take vaccines from this program that is actually meant for lower income countries. I believe Canada was the first or the only G7 country to take from the first batch that was going out. I, I think there are other countries or other G7 countries that are part of that program, but I think Canada was like the first to take from that batch. Is that how you understand it? That's probably accurate. You know, my 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 uh, information might be potentially like a, a month from a month earlier. So. No, all good. And I just wanted to clarify that for the for the listener. But I think you make a really good point about domestic production. And so the question I have is obviously when we entered this pandemic, we didn't have domestic production at all. When we entered this pandemic, similar to the UK, as you mentioned, did Canada still have the capacity to then and there, March or April 2020, build up to a point where we could have been manufacturing our own vaccines, or was that not even possible? You know, there's there's some arguments around this because the government is saying they wouldn't have been able to. The UK was able to. Um, and we did see, you know, later on the government investing in uh, manufacturing capacity in Quebec, mm-hmm. in Alberta. Uh, but this was done almost a year after <laughs> uh, we knew that this was needed. Yeah. And so, you know, I I don't think the government's excuses on this hold a lot of water. Uh, but, you know, that said, we are where we are at right now. And really moving forward, let's make sure every single person in Canada knows when they're going to get their vaccine uh, how, where they'll get it. Let's make sure that our federal government is showing leadership on this and uh, providing the supports to provinces that they need. You know, here in, I'm so grateful to live here in BC. Um, you know, I, I think we have seen real leadership at the provincial level. But one of the things that we had actually uh, proposed was establishing a plan for mass national vaccinations to happen. And that includes making sure that uh, the military is on hand for provinces who might need additional help, that we have healthcare professionals, medical and nursing students, retired healthcare workers, uh, you know, on hand so that across Canada, we can get these vaccines out to people as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And that requires federal leadership. (laughs) You know, there are things we can be doing to make sure that our federal government is is keeping this vaccine rollout on track and or getting it back on track, really. You touched on this briefly, but I want to talk about it just a little more. Is there any talk about a Canadian emergency wage subsidy clawback? So many large companies, some of them not even Canadian, collected wage subsidies despite turning large profits, despite paying out dividends to shareholders. And some of them even ended up laying off employees despite collecting the wage subsidy. I know Bell Media was one of the more prominent examples of that. When you look at those numbers, I'm not sure how this alone doesn't sink the Trudeau government because they can still introduce a clawback to ensure that the money was well spent to keep employment afloat, 
not to pad the pockets of wealthy shareholders, right? So is there any discussion around creating a clawback for corporate in- income taxes? I mean, if you if you count a discussion uh, being New Democrats uh, in the House of Commons calling for this uh, from the federal government, I've been up multiple times talking about uh, the fact that this government gave out so much money to these large corporations. And, you know, I talked specifically about Bell because we had layoffs here in Victoria. Uh, Bell Media was laying off workers after collecting millions of dollars in the wage subsidy and giving million dollar, millions of dollars out to their shareholders. It's, it is just so infuriating, you know, that this federal government will not hold these government, these, these companies to account. And Volkswagen, Volkswagen, who, you know, not too long ago was <laughs> developing cheat devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were doing a uh, study and committee on some of the health impacts of uh, that and some of the, uh, how really Volkswagen got off the hook uh, in our, our uh, prosecution and, uh, penalties for them when they they put Canadians' health at risk mm-hmm. with these devices. Now they you know, they received millions of dollars from the wage subsidy. They then gave out billions of dollars to their shareholders, and the the federal government refuses to do anything. The Liberals refuse to do anything, and it's just such a clear example to me. When we have small businesses here in my community, but also across Canada, startups who cannot access the wage subsidy, they cannot access the rental subsidy. The government, as you know, I bring their stories to Parliament. I talk to the minister. I write them letters. I've talked to the minister's staff about these these cases. They will not include these people who are legitimately struggling, who are contributing to our community, who are employing staff, who are trying their best to keep their doors open during a global pandemic. They will not help those people out, but they continue to help out the largest corporations who have shown very clearly that they are passing that money on to the wealthiest. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It is just, it's so infuriating. It's so unjust. And it is a pattern of behavior with the Liberal government who continues to put the interests of big corporations and the wealthiest uh, before the interest of everyday Canadians. And uh, I just, uh, I, I have not heard any reasonable explanation for why the Liberals will not change this policy. And from the get-go, way back when the pandemic first hit and we were talking about the wage subsidy and we were talking about some of the programs that were going to help businesses, New Democrats called on the government to implement policies like they had implemented in Denmark and other countries where there were restrictions on whether or not a company could pay out bonuses to their CEOs, Mm -hmm. whether or not they could have, uh, you know, pay out huge dividends to their shareholders while still receiving this money. But the Liberals refused to put in place those policies. And that benefits those big companies at the expense of everyone else. Absolutely. And I I appreciate your advocacy on this. and And I wish more people we're talking about this and this is sort of how I want to wrap up the podcast because I, I look at so many popular common sense, federal NDP platform planks, universal and affordable childcare, universal pharmacare, dental care, clean water in indigenous communities, a fairer tax regime, commitment to racial gender, LGBTQ equity, the liberals and prime minister, Justin Trudeau talk 
a great game when it comes to all this stuff, but they've let down progressives, and I'd say they let down Canadians on every level on these issues. And so I'm always telling friends, you know, there's another option. There's another viable progressive option. Why do you think Canadians are so hesitant to give the NDP a chance at governing federally? I mean, I think it's partially a product of our first-past-the-post system uh, that really, you know, consolidates power within uh, kind of a binary dynamic of, uh, you know, back and forth, passing back and forth power between two parties. Uh, I do think we need proportional representation to change some of these uh, huge issues in our electoral system. But I think beyond that, Politics is always uh, this conversation about what's possible. Uh, and it is about values, but it's also about kind of what is practical, what people consider to be possible within the electoral framework that we have. And we saw in 2015, you know, that initially during that election, it was a fight between the NDP and the Conservatives. And uh, that was, you know, when the NDP was the official opposition. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was... You know, you know, prior to that with Jack, this kind of rise of the NDP on the federal, uh, uh, I'm losing my words, I'm sorry, after an hour of talking about this, on the federal landscape, uh, the you, we really saw kind of this rise and this opening of uh, what Canadians thought was possible when it comes to uh, the NDP and their role uh, in federal politics. Now, I think... Right now, we have a situation where young people, I would say British Columbians <laughs> and young people, uh, really see New Democrats as a possibility, as, um, as the, the party that is bringing forward the policies that they want to uh, see, and also with the credibility and the um, commitment to actually following through on that. And so I think if we see young people coming out to vote in this upcoming election, if we, you know, there have been a number of polls where the NDP has been leading in the 18 to 34 demographic. Mm -hmm. There have been, you know, a, there was a recent poll where <laughs> the NDP was leading in British Columbia uh, on the kind of federal level. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think if we, if we see that mobilization of that vote, we could potentially see a shift in what Canadians see as possible. That said, it is a COVID election. And, uh, you know, if, if the election is this spring, uh, if it's early in the fall and we're still dealing with the pandemic, I really think that this election will be focused primarily on, on kind of how the vaccine world it went, how the uh, government dealt with COVID-19 and it is hard for opposition parties in that context. You know, we've seen this across the country in provincial elections uh, during the pandemic. The there is a bump for the governing party, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're Donald Trump <laughs> um, <laughs> and royally mess things up. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I think it, it will be a hard-fought battle in the upcoming election. I know. Um, that there are, there are a lot of people right now who who see these programs, who see the economic injustice, who see the gendered, racial um, 
and justice across our country who see the opportunity of these social programs and support systems, um, these universal programs that could make such a huge difference in people's lives, but also are looking at the climate crisis that we're mm -hmm. facing and wanting a party that doesn't just talk about it. You know, I was in, um, I was at COP25, uh, which is the UN uh, kind of global conference on climate change. And I got the amazing opportunity to meet Greta Thunberg. And oh, wow. she, yeah, she was about to go up and give a speech. And what she talked about was, you know, the threat used to be climate denial, people uh, ignoring the science or, you know, really uh, denying that climate change was a threat. She said, that's no longer the case. The real threat now are politicians, uh, people in the public sector, uh, CEOs who are very adept at talking about the climate crisis, who are very adept at saying the right things, but who are unwilling to actually meet the, this crisis with the scale of action needed. Mm -hmm. And we see that uh, when it comes to the climate crisis, we see that when it comes to national child care, we see that when it comes to national pharmacare, we see that when it comes to uh, providing clean drinking water to Indigenous communities, it, you know, as much as this government talks about it, they continue to actually do what is necessary to address these issues. And I hope that it, at some point... Um, you know, Canadians right now are struggling. They are focused on making the ends meet. They're focused on their families, their communities, which makes sense. And so it's hard to be totally tapped into politics and to know every little detail about what is rolled out. So when the prime minister says they're committed to something, sometimes people just take that, <laughs> that sure. another word. And that would, you know, it would be ideal if that were the case. Unfortunately, with this prime minister and this government, it's not the case. Centrists are complicit. That's the conclusion. <laughs> I mean, like, I just want to also acknowledge that, you know, following politics closely, it's just not actually accessible for most people. Most mm -hmm. people are, you know, working very hard in their lives are, you know, trying to manage in a system that uh, has a lot of economic injustice, has a lot of injustice on a number of levels. Uh, you know, there are people out there juggling three jobs who are, you know, worried about whether or not they'll be able to make their rent this month or afford their medication. Uh, and these policies, if implemented, would make a real difference from them. But it's just not actually possible for them to, you know, <laughs> follow mm -hmm. uh, everything that this government does. And it is so frustrating to see a government that in some ways takes advantage of that and uh, continues to make promises and break those promises. Absolutely. Laurel, I just want to say this was a delight. I hope we can do it again sometime, maybe to discuss the environment or universal dental care. There's so much that you can speak on, but I just felt like at this moment in time with your pregnancy and some of the themes around childcare that have been discussed on this podcast, I really wanted to focus in on that. And of course, speculate a little bit on the election, which a lot of people are doing as well. So I appreciate your time. As we wrap it up here, what is your call to action? 
Oh, uh, great question. But before we jump to that, I just want to quickly say thank you so much, Mo, for having me on, for having this conversation, especially for dedicating uh, multiple episodes in your podcast to national childcare, to uh, this really important issue that oftentimes doesn't get enough coverage. I just want to say thank you. Um, and I would love to come back and talk about any of those things, especially uh, when it comes to the climate crisis and emotions. I know you cover kind of <laughs> emotions and how that weaves into politics. Yep. Uh, that's something I'm very passionate about, especially when it comes to climate grief and climate action. So anytime we'll do it. And I appreciate those kind words. Thank you. But call to action. We still need a call, call to, to action. action. You know, I, you know, I, I would say get out and vote, <laughs> you know, and I would have a specific call to action uh, to young people right now. Uh, I think, you know, young people have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. They are uh, definitely the ones who are going to feel the uh, most impacts from the climate crisis. Uh, this, you know, being pregnant at this time has also kind of uh, framed up some of the work that I want to do in the world in terms of what kind of world we're creating for the child that I'm bringing into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so really, yeah, just uh, when it comes to uh, electoral politics, I hope that young people will not only get out and vote, but also run, you know, get involved, work on campaigns, step forward into leadership positions. We need your voices. We need your action. It shouldn't be up to you uh, as a young cohort to have to fight for a livable future and mm -hmm. uh, for these things. But in so many ways, we just, we need your voice. We need your action and we need your participation. And so, Really, I think, yeah, my, my call out is, is to those, those young uh, folks who are, are so passionate and knowledgeable and bring so much, um, really wanting them to step forward. I appreciate that. And I'm going to add that former guest, Markeel Simpson, that goes double for him. He has to run. <laughs> I'd love to see him run as a young, passionate <laughs> candidate. Laurel, this was a treat. All the best to you and your family. I wish you a very happy and healthy home stretch pregnancy and a happy and healthy baby whenever uh, they are ready to enter the world. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Take care, Mo. People, more mom stuff, but it's not just mom or parent issues. Child rearing is one of the big emerging themes of this podcast this year. I think we need to look at it, not just in its own silo, but also through the lens of public health, the economy, and culture. I am fascinated by this. I'm going to continue to find great guests to speak on these issues from personal experience and from professional experience, just like my guest today. She is a force. She is the Member of Parliament for the Riding of Victoria, B.C., representing the NDP and led by my big brother, Jagmeet Singh. She is Laurel Collins, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>